Hello and welcome to A Glimpse into the Future. My name is Rigas Hadzilakos, and in this podcast series, we explore with some of the world's leading experts how new technologies and ideas can help us shape our future. In this week's episode, my colleague Mark Spellman talks to three members of the World Economic Forum's Council on the Future of Digital Economy and Society. Arun Mohan Sukumar, head of the Cyber Initiative at the Observer Research Foundation, Mariette Schake, member of the European Parliament, and Dr. Richard Soli, chairman and chief executive officer of the Object Management Group and executive director of the Industrial Internet Consortium. Aaron, there's been a lot of interesting sort of digital innovation going on in India. So tell us a little bit more about what is it we should know about innovation in the digital space in India at the moment. So, Mark, I think we have to sort of situate what is happening in India versus what's happening globally. So you are seeing a lot of technological innovations that are coming out of Silicon Valley, but you're also seeing some sort of a, a counter-movement by governments across the world uh, trying to regulate technologies in what might seem to be in very strong terms, whether it is in the form of data localization that you're seeing in China uh, or in the European Union or against what companies would say are very strong regulations on privacy and data protection that are coming out of the European Union. In this context, what's happening in India is quite remarkable, given that it is today one of the most open markets or the most open digital economies anywhere in the world. But what you're seeing is that the market is being carved up, uh, in, a, in a matter of speaking, by companies that are not based in the country. So the software platforms that are used by the vast majority of Indians today are not crafted in India. The hardware that is used by Indians to connect to the Internet today are not made in India. So you have this unique digital economy where, uh, you know, hundreds and thousands of citizens are going online every month at the same time using platforms and devices that are largely insecure. So some would say that this is, of course, setting the digital economy up for a great catastrophe down the road. But folks are also pointing out to the positive aspects, which is that so far the goals of greater internet connectivity and greater, more richer access to the internet have all been satisfied in India, which is a rarity in the in the global scene right now. And tell us a bit more about Adhar particularly, because that is one of these sort of unique digital applications where you've got uh, a billion people in India who are connected uh, through a digital identity platform. Uh, is that working? And maybe sort of as we begin to think about that sort of uh, uh, system, what are some of the security challenges that it poses? So Adhar, I think, figures essentially in the innovations that uh, you know, you had asked the innovations that are coming out of India. And what you are seeing is that these innovations are increasingly being tailored to the local context, by which I mean Aadhaar is a large biometric database of, uh, you know, of uh, confidently a majority of Indian citizens today. Uh, it is not mandatory yet to get uh, to be, uh, you know, plugged into the Aadhaar database today, meaning that it is not compulsory for Indian citizens to enroll uh, their biometrics and personally identifiable information onto the Aadhaar database. But the government is trying to make this a very lucrative proposition by saying, look, if you sign up for this biometric database, then we have a suite of applications that are available uh, that harvests your Aadhaar ID and your personally identifiable information and authenticates your digital transactions in a number of other spheres. So as a result of which financial inclusion is now possible to you, 
you you don't have to store your uh, you know passport or your driving license or your voter id uh, in physical copies you can just put them on what is called a digital locker you can transfer money to anybody anywhere in the world using certain platforms that are digitally crafted so aadhaar is a database but it is also forming the bedrock of technological innovations that are coming out of india and do you see some specific uh, security challenges uh, in maintaining that database we can sort of see the opportunities that it creates but what are some of the risks yes and and there, and there are several risks the biggest risk that comes with any such enterprise at a national scale is that you are creating a single database that collects the biometrics and personally identifiable information of citizens now i mean it is a conventional it is accepted wisdom that if you have one centralized database then the risk of that database being subjected to cyber attacks is fairly high of course the the platform may be insulated in that the the actual database and the servers which contain the information of uh, indians whether it is biometrics and uh, a personally identifying information may be technically secure but the risk of leakage might be in the form of uh, you know uh, of government agencies and private sector uh, of of uh, businesses that are using this aadhar platform to verify and authenticate transactions by indians so it is at that stage which is quite tertiary in the business transaction that you might possibly have data leakages it's unlikely you know the 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 other of course risk of collecting this is that if you have instances where biometrics can be duplicated then that presents a serious risk for the citizen who has provided this because you know biometrics can't be replicated if they are lost or if they are fake so that's a, that is of course the biggest risk i personally feel that the risk of biometrics being duplicated or being you know somehow fraudulently being manipulated are less but more worrying are the risks of personally identifiable information being uh, leaked into the public domain so there are definitely uh, some uh, major cybersecurity concerns there and we're seeing the use of more and more platforms on a global sort of basis so what what are some of the sort of the lessons that we're uh, learning from india about how do we keep platforms secure and what should the rest of the world be taking note of regarding uh, security around platforms that's, that's a great question mark i, I think till now we have been in india at least we have been recipients of security of platform security because most of the applications that are developed uh, in silicon valley come to india as a finished product whether it is whatsapp or whether it is uber or any of the major sharing economy platforms that come to india are finished products and therefore there is no india specific cyber security or india specific uh, protocols that are in place to recognize that look this is a growing digital economy and the nature of risks might be different from what are perceived to be risks in silicon valley now i think uh, you know we are entering uh, a more a secondary phase in the development of platforms in india uh, if i may draw your attention to uh, whatsapp recently linking what is called the unified payments interface a technology that was developed in india then and a technology that uh, is aadhar enabled to make payments um uh, through whatsapp so this is a technology that has been made in silicon valley but recognizing certain innovations that have come out of india whatsapp has decided to integrate this you know for lack of a better word homegrown platform that brings with it a series of additional risks do we know for instance 
uh, how secure the devices that Indians use on a day-to-day basis for, you know, performing these financial transactions over WhatsApp are. And, and that's really the biggest risk, uh, that devices that are the mobile handheld devices that Indians use on a day-to-day basis are, are largely insecure. The market share of an iPhone in India, for instance, is less than 2%. So these devices that are insecure are going to be the vehicles for digital transactions, whether they are transactions of data, of communication, or whether they are transactions of money. And I think the biggest risk or the biggest uh, awareness that platforms that are built elsewhere in the world uh, need to have while they come to India and while they develop their market in India is that there might be an additional element of risks or insecurity associated with uh, such a young digital economy. So as we look forward and think about the next 12, 24 months, and particularly as we look at Davos in 2018, Aaron, tell us what do you think are the one or two most important things that leaders need to be focused on as they think about the security issues looking forward? I think, Mark, the big takeaway for policymakers when they meet in Davos next year has to be that you have to get the basics right. Uh, the digital economies of developing countries are not going to be homogenous or uh, they are not going to have the same kind of security across the platforms and the devices um, in the digital economy. As a result of which, you need to build awareness into the citizenry at a very early stage. What is lacking currently, even in big economies like India and China, is that um, there is not enough awareness about uh, cyber hygiene, about best practices, about how you use your devices, your software platforms, and the problems or the risks or the vulnerabilities associated with using those digital platforms. And this is the mandate of the government, given that education in developing countries is still the remit uh, of government expenditure and government departments. Cybersecurity awareness has to start at the bottom, and this has to be the big takeaway at ours. Marietta, you've been a passionate advocate of um, an ambitious digital trade strategy. You've got some clear principles about how do we make digital trade strategy work. Maybe you could articulate something about those principles, why they're important, and how we're doing in terms of progressing them. So I think we can see a clear trend of a rapid technological revolution that is also leading to more and more cross-border economic activity. And while that creates enormous potential, for example, for services to reach consumers worldwide, we must be mindful of the barriers that still exist and aspire to make sure that the rule of law applies online as well. And that goes for trade rules all the same as, for example, fundamental rights. So I think it is important that when we draft rules that frame this global digital trade, that we look at the public interest and make sure that there are safeguards there. And are we making progress on those uh, issues about access and consumer benefits and fundamental rights? Well, when I look at what we are doing in the European Union, I would say definitely yes. Uh, There is a lot of work being done to create a digital single market or a digital single space, if you will. And, of course, I'm impatient. I would like it to go faster. Uh, But there are clear benefits, for example, when you look at uh, general data protection regulation, when you look at enshrining net neutrality into EU law, and when we also look at uh, impact of targeting anti-competitive behavior of big global companies where the EU is clearly showing leadership. But for me, it's important to look beyond the European Union and look at the global context. And I think that the EU is in a clear position to be that norm setter and to pave the way for global rules framing digital trade.
And you talk about global rules. Uh, one of the key engines of growth is small, medium-sized enterprises, and yet they very often seem to be the ones that struggle most to take advantage of cross-border uh, trading opportunities. How can we make sure that particularly those small, medium-sized enterprises really understand how to, if you like, maximize the advantage of digital trade? Well, indeed, small, medium enterprises are, of course, uh, the backbone of all of our economies. And uh, it is actually very exciting to see what opportunities digital services create for people. I mean, an architect could, you know, sell his or her designs to anyone across the world, even if it's a single-person uh, company. But that would actually presume that there would be predictable rules and no surprises for these relatively small companies because, of course, uh, unexpected uh, barriers or surprises or challenges in understanding the bureaucracy of which rules apply where are all barriers for people to dare to take the step to the other side of the world. And so I think a predictable legal landscape, a predictable environment without unnecessary barriers, whether it's for large companies that usually find a way around it with their big legal teams, but particularly when it's, when it comes to smaller companies. So the goal in having a rules-based digital trade uh, structure is certainly to create clear benefits for also the, the smaller and medium-sized enterprises. And do you think um, digital payment is a critical enabler for that to happen? We talk a lot about sort of consumer protection, but it seems to me that uh, looking particularly at the ways that um, those small, medium-sized enterprises can actually pay for products and services uh, cross-border uh, uh, is, is, a, is a key component going forward of this. Yes, indeed, digital payments are very important, but uh, also the, the removal of unnecessary barriers like digital protectionism or uh, all kinds of obstacles that would be fairly easy for the huge companies that we know from Silicon Valley, for example, to circumvent or to address, but what would be much harder for smaller companies to address. So, uh, indeed, it is important to have a level playing field also between larger and smaller companies, and therefore fair competition rules, for example, and market access without unnecessary barriers is key. And we see this, for example, in a country like, like China, where um, the, um, uh, the obstacles can be quite significant and where we also see that, uh, as a result, some of the companies, like, for example, Apple recently uh, felt itself forced to create local data centers in order to comply with Chinese rules and that the consequences for the rights of users can be uh, potentially quite significant when there is a forced data localization with all the access that governments can then have to that data. There's clearly a lot of complexity around digital trade. So as you look forward over the course of the next uh, 12 to 18 months, what do you think are the sort of two or three critical sort of policy areas that uh, need to be worked on, uh, firstly at the European level, but then also at the global level? Well, I believe part of the question is a philosophical one where it needs to be clear that we should put people first. There's a tendency for the technology to run ahead of us without any rules framework, frankly, without any checks and balances, any oversight. And I think the risk is that we, we get privately set norms, essentially, uh, without having the public interest at heart. So I would encourage anyone thinking about the importance of the rule of law online uh, when it applies to, to trade to think about people first, to think about elements of ethics, and to understand that there is a public interest that needs to be safeguarded in a world where 
digitization increasingly means privatization. And how do you think we also bring up sort of the overall sort of customer and consumer and citizen awareness and understanding of all the dimensions of digital trade? Because there is complexity there. And clearly, I think as people look at the opportunities, they understand a little bit more about the risks. But is there an educational job that we need to do around digital trade, particularly with citizens? Well, education is always key, of course, in order for people to know what they're getting into when they sign the terms of use, for example, of a service that, that seems free but that may have other uh, consequences in terms of the price that consumers pay, or when it comes to understanding what opportunities exist in seeking to reach customers abroad. So, of course, education is important, but it's also essential that governments take their own responsibility and uh, carry on working on this important agenda because the, the speed of, with which technology develops is usually faster than the speed with which democratically made and, and uh, overseen rules are made. So I think this mismatch between the speed of norm setting and evolution on the, on the tech side and on the private sector side uh, compared to the public sector is actually a challenge. And I believe, of course, as a, as a lawmaker in an open society and a democracy that the open society, open markets are essential for the well-being of people, but it does mean that we need to have an application of the rule of law also in a globally connected world. So, Marietta, you're a policymaker, and if you were sort of thinking and anticipating about uh, the meeting in Davos in 2018, what would be the one key message that you would want to convey to both business leaders and also other policymakers about what needs to happen around digital trade? I believe it is a shared responsibility between policymakers and the private sector to look at the legitimate global set of rules that puts people first and that safeguards the public interest. And there are certain principles in our open societies like fair competition, like respect for fundamental rights and the rule of law that have not yet been transposed to the way in which global digital trade takes shape. And I think governments cannot do it alone, but the private sector also needs to understand what the public interest is here. And uh, I believe that especially for the open societies of this world, this is a major challenge, but it is also a major opportunity to be in the leading uh, role to, to set these legitimate global rules around an already evolving uh, digital trade ecosystem. So, Richard, where are we exactly in the evolution of the industrial Internet? Is 2017 proving to be a tipping point in terms of where we are in its evolution and maturity? Absolutely, Mark. It's a tipping point or a turning point. We're seeing enormous changes uh, on, on the horizon with our two dozen uh, test beds, as you know, in healthcare, in manufacturing and production, city services, agriculture, oil, gas and mining, electrical grids, power generation, distribution, transmission. We're seeing changes on the horizon from all of those, uh, and the testbed program is proving to be an excellent way to understand what those changes might be. And if you look at um, what is creating that uh, tipping point or that turning point, what, what are you actually seeing which is sort of giving that indication that things are sort of maturing and developing? What are the, what's the evidence that we've, we're getting? We're finally starting to learn from the test beds exactly what skills and uh, security requirements and standards requirements are necessary. And it, there's really no, no way to do that except by actually trying it. Um, as you know, our testbed program is designed 
to test ideas. And we know that IoT is going to have impact on all sorts of bits of the economy and major industry. It's already had some obvious effects in the consumer space. But in healthcare, in, in agriculture, and so forth, we didn't really understand how to apply it. Now we're starting to understand it, and the only way to do that is by actually building test beds and trying it out. We published an architecture guide and a fantastic vocabulary, uh, a well-regarded security framework. We've published a connectivity framework. We're about to publish an analytics framework. All very useful, but without real experience, you don't know what you're doing. So now we know what we're doing. We're starting to learn lessons from these test beds, the oldest of which is only two and a half years old. So tell us a little bit about what really excites you about these uh, test beds or large-scale experiments that you're doing. Um, how do they work in practice, and how do you capture the insights out of them? That's uh, an interesting question. Uh, I, I'll answer in the other order. Uh, capturing uh, learnings from these, from these projects is quite difficult. Um, it's, a, it's a combination of, uh, of academics watching some of the developments uh, underway um, by the developers building the systems and what they run into, that's actually hard to capture those kinds of uh, problems and solutions as, as they come about. But our testbed teams, especially a few of our testbed teams, do an sterling work. And we have been spending a tremendous amount of time interviewing our testbed teams about what problems they ran into uh, and, uh, and how, how, they, how they found solutions. But I'll tell you the single most exciting thing, the first part of your question, the single most exciting thing is the realization of the importance of data. Uh, we've all seen the, the line, data is eating the world. I, I don't like the line because I don't know what it means. But I will tell you, and I don't think anyone understood the value of data until we actually started building these test beds and learning that uh, the data is, that's coming out of these systems is a much larger amount of data in, in, a, in a fashion that's much, very unexpected. And we're learning things from that data, how to integrate systems that were never intended to be integrated uh, how to uh, how to build systems that take advantage of that data in new and interesting ways. It's not all about privacy and security either. Some of it's just machine data and and uh, and integrating it with manufacturing uh, systems and integrating them with supply chain systems and so forth. Um, uh, and some of that data um, has the has the net effect of uh, causing people to want to go out on strikes. On something we learned from our uh, smart cities test bed in Southern Ireland in County Cork, the the, uh, the GPS data that we got off the ambulances caused the ambulance drivers to want to go on strike because they didn't like being tracked. Instead, we were able to use that data in a new and intelligent way to ensure that they were able to spend their time uh, off in between calls exactly as they wanted. Uh, and that was a completely different way of thinking about how to use data that makes people happier and not unhappy. Um, that's what's exciting is when you look at the mass of data that comes off one of these projects and you realize there's a different way of thinking, a different way of integrating, and an even an even new business models. That's very interesting. What about, uh, are there any other sort of really interesting examples that you can sort of point to that's coming out of the test beds? Or, uh, obviously, tracking ambulances is one. What else are you seeing in the test beds which are, I think, sort of challenging the existing way that we're doing things? Uh, as I as I mentioned briefly, it's it's uh, about integrating systems that were never intended to be integrated. So I'll give you a very specific example. Our first test bed, which is the Bosch Tech Mahindra test bed, now joined by National Instruments, SAP, and Cisco, is running in the in the Hamburg factory, Bosch's Hamburg factory in southwestern Germany, uh, and now being uh, sent out to all of Bosch manufacturing centers and selected customers worldwide. And what they've learned very very clearly is that they need to be able to control. Uh, all of the devices on the factory floor. 
Now, what's interesting about this is they knew they had to control Bosch devices on the factory floor to know where the devices were, where the people are, where the robots are, where the work in progress is, and where the parts are. But they have to control not only Bosch uh, devices, but other devices that are on the floor from other manufacturers, like Trump and Snap It and Make It and uh, Snap On and Make It and so forth. What's interesting about that is even Bosch's manufacturing centers for manufacturing manufacturing tools have tools from other manufacturers. So that pointed to the need for standards to integrate the tools of every manufacturer into the system, even though they, of course, are com competitors in many areas. So I, I suppose it's something we could have guessed beforehand, but to see it live with the data that's coming off of the test bed, uh, off of uh, hundreds of manufacturing centers worldwide, that's when you really learn it and you learn how important it is. And we talk a lot about interoperability and the importance of that, uh, and you referenced this issue of standards. Are we making progress with standards? So in other words, if you go back to your Bosch example, um, were the standards there to be able to create that interoperability, or is there more to be done? And if so, where do we need to focus? Yeah, there's more to be done. So uh, but the standards are essentially a rising tide. If you look at the stack of technology that enables Internet of Things in, in industry, um, it starts at the bottom level in some sort of connectivity solution and goes all the way up to semantics. In the connectivity realm, those problems are solved. In the, in the technology for describing these systems, those problems are solved. They're hard, but they're solved. Uh, so in my role as chairman of the object management group, we're focusing very much on the testbed results that point at where we think standards need to be done, which is semantics. So we were just talking about uh, getting different manufacturers' tools to work on the manufacturing floor of tool manufacturers themselves. The only way that's going to happen, since they're going to build different tools with different interfaces used by different people for different purposes, the only way that's going to happen is you have semantic standards, semantic integration between those tools and the factory. So that's an area where the object management group is developing standards. But as I say, it's a rising tide. At the bottom of the standard stack, we're in pretty great shape. We've got standards like OMG's own DDS, but also MQTT and AMQP and many other standards for connecting systems. The next step is what does that information mean when you pass it around an integrated system, especially when those systems were developed separately and have to be integrated afterwards. So just tell me, um, are we able to keep pace in terms of skills development? Because we talk a lot about the technology, the standards, the interoperability, but do you think we're also making sufficient progress on the skills side of the equation? I, I really don't, um, and, and I'll explain why. I, I think the problem with skills management is people are looking for very specific skills and we're still learning what skills are necessary. Of course, data analysis, which is essentially uh, uh, in the realm of st uh, statisticians, uh, that, that's going to be and, and already is important in taking advantage of uh, the enormous streams of data that are coming from these systems. But we don't really know all of the skills that are necessary. I look at educational systems in some countries, uh, for example, Germany, that focus on the infrastructure skills, the, the reading, writing, arithmetic, the, what we used to call three R's in the United States, um, and I say that that's where we should be focusing, ensure that we have strong in infrastructure skills, strong basic skills, and then we'll be able to move in whatever direction is necessary. If I understand the abstraction of building systems, then as those abstractions change, as those systems change, I'll be able to get somewhere uh, in my career. So I actually think that's a, a major function of governments, be preparing for the enormous changes we are seeing in many industries, as I say, in healthcare, in manufacturing, in mining, electrical grids, and so forth, in preparing our populations to be able to deal with that dis disruption, and we are seeing disruption already. So if we're looking at disruption, if we're looking at takeoff and turning points, 
What do you think business leaders and policymakers should be really focused on over the next uh, 12 to 18 months? And specifically, what would your message be to people going to Davos in uh, early 2018? The most important thing I would say, other than the value of data, which we have just discussed, is that every industry is affected. We prepare now by exploring how my industry is going to be affected, how my industry is going to be integrated, and how it's going to be integrated in other industries, because we're seeing uh, unbelievable amounts of integration across industries, across uh, city services and agriculture and so forth. And that's not something that we've seen very deeply before. So policymakers and business owners and, and business managers should be focusing on ensuring that we understand what it is that our customers are actually buying, not the things we make, not the services we offer, but what it is that we're buying. It's, it's the old uh, um, buggies versus transportation story. Uh, and then ensuring that we have a workforce that is up to those requirements as the requirements change. Thanks very much indeed for spelling out your vision and your thoughts about where we are with industrial internet of things. Thank you, Mark. That was Arun Mohan Sukumar, Mariette Shake, and Dr. Richard Soli on the future of the digital economy and society. My name is Rigas Hadzilakos, and that was all from this week's episode of A Glimpse into the Future. <laughs>